to the Hope for the Animals podcast, sponsored by United Poultry Concerns. I'm your host, Hope Bohannock, and you can find all our past shows by going to our website, hopefortheanimalspodcast.org, and you can find my contact information there as well. I would love to hear from you. Today on the podcast, we have joining us Dr. Leila Degon, and she is a doctor and nutritionist from the UK. She's in London. But if you listen to the podcast regularly, you'll know that I don't generally feature anything about health or nutrition. There are a lot of podcasts out there focused on veganism and health, but for me, veganism is about ending the suffering of animals, justice for animals and the planet and humans as well. Veganism to me is a justice issue and the health benefits are just a bonus. But Layla has a different angle in the nutrition sector and she addresses the health issues that are exacerbated by racial and socioeconomic issues and how that relates to veganism. So a bit of a different take on it and that's why I'm happy to have her on today. But first, it's been a little while since I've done a Glimmers of Hope segment. The Glimmers of Hope segment is where I research and report to you about good news for animals, good news for animals that's happening around the world, stories that might have been a little more obscure that you might have missed, and you know, it's been a rough summer. <laughs> we had we had kind of a glimmer of hope in the spring that the pandemic was easing here in the US. Masks were coming off and things were opening up, but that has now been squashed with another wave of people sick and dying from the Delta variant. And compounding that, there's just this relentless news of extreme weather events all around the world. And I'm living it here in Northern California, where once again, fire season has brought smoke choking the air and massive fires around our area. The sky is once again that ominous orange and the air quality is horrible. So I feel like I could use some good news, so I'm wanting to do another Glimmers of Hope segment so we can bask in a few things that are going right, a few good news stories for animals uh, before we bring in our guest. And I want to say I understand why we focus on the negative as activists and as animal people. It's, it's important to be knowledgeable. We want to and we need to know what's going on and we need to educate ourselves and others about what's happening in the world, not only with animals, but with everyone on the planet, everything that's happening on the planet. But I think also that there can be an element of being just overwhelmed with so much negative information and it can be frustrating that it's so easy for people to be indifferent to the suffering. So we want to be sure that that we are not indifferent and that as caring, compassionate, sensitive people, being animal lovers, we want to be present with it. We want to bear witness 
But sometimes that can be really overwhelming and that's not healthy. So it's good to have balance. It's good to sometimes focus on the positive things that are happening. And there's a lot of them. There are a lot of good things, small wins that can be really hopeful that makes me hopeful that we can turn things around, that we can make the world a better place for everyone. So I give you some glimmers of hope. So I'll start us off with an environmental good news story. This happened earlier in the year, and but I think it's really significant, and that's the House passed this Protecting America's Wilderness and Public Lands Act, and it's just a really sweeping legislation that protects places like the Grand Canyon and Colorado and California wilderness areas, protects them from mining and other kinds of threats, those kinds of things. It protects over 2 million acres of wilderness and land and water in those areas. And it still has to pass the Senate, but environmental groups are are fairly confident that it will. And I'll just say that this is the incredible benefit of having a democratically controlled government. There are good things happening that we aren't hearing about every day, that are protecting our wild spaces. Is it enough? No, of course not. But at least it's moving us in the right direction, where the last administration was just detrimental to our wild places and our wildlife. So there are good things happening for wildlife, for our land, for our water that we don't hear about every day. Uh, And one of them is this act, the Protecting America's Wilderness and Public Lands Act. Okay, in other good news, Maryland has become the fifth state to ban cosmetic testing on animals. So this is great news. It's also, though, an issue I think that has been moving way too slow. It's been way too slow to change. I just, I can't believe that we are still in the U.S. conducting horrifying and painful experiments on a variety of species of animals to test cosmetic safety, especially now that there are computer model, there's like computer model testing that's even more accurate than animal testing. And public opinion has is really against cosmetic testing. There was a poll in 2019 that showed that close to 80% of people in the U.S. were overwhelmingly against animal testing for cosmetics. So I'm really hopeful that more states will follow Maryland quickly and perhaps federal legislation will be coming soon. And I always want to thank the activists who made this happen. There's always compassionate people who worked hard to see these changes made. So uh, I want to acknowledge them. Thank you to the activists that help create this ban and make this ban happen. This next story is also about a ban, and this is is really big. This has the potential to save the suffering of millions of animals. New Zealand banned live export, and live export is the shipping of animals by sea in cargo containers. Australia and New Zealand are big live exporters of cows and sheep and other animals that are destined to numerous uh, countries, Middle Eastern countries, Asian countries, to be slaughtered for their meat. 
And this issue has stood out in the activist community as really particularly horrible because of the suffering that these animals endure for days and weeks on these ships out at sea where they're, they're not cared for, many suffer and die. So this ban from New Zealand is huge, and hopefully Australia will follow suit And again, thanks goes to the New Zealand activist who helped to make this ban happen, a ban on live exports. So that's some really good news. So let's switch over to some good news food stories. The Glimmers of Hope segment always has food involved because there is just so much good new vegan food products constantly. So uh, so let's talk about some new vegan food that's coming out. There's so much hopeful progress made in this sector. And one of the stories is out of Europe. And that is there is a new kind of non-dairy milk. And that is potato milk. Milk made from potatoes. You know, it seems that every few months there's a new kind of non-dairy milk, but this one is from potatoes. There's a Swedish brand that's come out with a potato milk, and there's also a, a Canadian brand too, so it's probably not long till we'll see it in the U.S., and I think, I really think it sounds good. I, <laughs> I, I could see where someone could be like, oh, yuck, potato milk? But I don't know, it sounds good to me. I think about mashed potatoes, you know, how good mashed potatoes are. Anyway, I think it's going to be good. I want to try it. And using potatoes is actually really sustainable. Potatoes use half of the land required to grow oats and 56 times less water than it takes to grow almonds. And those are two of, of course, the most common crops now used for plant-based milks, oats and almonds. And so they're more sustainable. Hey, you know, the more options, the better. I am down to try some potato milk. And in other good news, Impossible Foods is introducing vegan chicken nuggets this fall, and Beyond Meat is also releasing a Beyond Chicken Tender. And this is really incredible news for chickens. Up until now, the mimicking meat wars, you know, mimicking meats being the plant-based meats that really mimic the taste and texture of dead animal flesh, it's primarily been burger-based. Burgers and sausages, that's really been the, the main focus. And red meat is on the decline anyway. It's chicken's flesh that has stayed steady, even increased. So I'm really glad to see the focus shifting to chicken products. That is where I think the focus needs to be. So I'm glad to see that. Both these companies are focusing on selling at restaurants and they could be replacing chicken flesh on menus across the country. So that's really, really hopeful. The future is vegan. It's, it's really exciting to see. So this next story is a little random, but I thought would be interesting to include, and that is that the New York City mayoral candidate in the, on the Democratic ticket is an avid vegan. 
His name is Eric Adams, and he won the Democratic primary for New York City mayor. I love the beginning of this article from the New York Post. I have to, to read it to you. It says, quote, After temporarily losing his vision to type 2 diabetes, Eric Adams turned over a new leaf, kale and spinach to be exact. Haha, <laughs> clever. <laughs> so he went vegan in 2016 and reversed his diabetes, and he had nerve damage in his hands and feet, as well as heart disease, and he reversed all that, and he's now a healthy and thriving vegan. And if he's elected, he plans to launch lifestyle medicine clinics all throughout the five boroughs in order to teach New Yorkers about nutritious plant-based alternatives. It seems that he is very health-focused, but let's hope that that expands and that he will also embrace the benefits to animals and to the environment in his speeches and his support of the diet. But it's really great. We do need to have more vegan politicians for sure. So I hope he wins. So in this last story, I'm going to wrap up our Glimmers of Hope segment with this one. Animals will be recognized as sentient beings for the first time in UK law thanks to the introduction of the Animal Welfare Sentience Bill introduced into Parliament. This means that any new legislation will have to take into account the fact that animals have the ability to experience feelings, including pain, joy, and fear, and that their emotions and welfare deserve consideration and protection when laws are made. And it doesn't exclude farmed animals. Farm animals, farmed animals are included. So I want to read a little bit of what they say here. So the, the Animal Welfare Sentience Bill will formally recognize animals as sentient beings in domestic law. It will establish an animal sentience committee made up of experts to ensure cross-departmental government policy considers animal sentience. And it will ensure government ministries update their parliament on the recommendations made by that committee, the Animal Sentience Committee. This is incredible. I, I really feel that this is so important because I think that ultimately these are the tools that will really create wide scale change. If we start to recognize the full scale of their emotional capacity and the harm that is done to animals psychologically and physically in, say, farming, how much of a stretch is it to say that it's harmful to kill an animal, that it's harmful to take the babies away in milk production, that it's harmful to separate families and hatch chicks without their mothers? I mean, all that is standard practice in farming, a standard practice that really has to stay in place for a product to be profitable. The threads of animal agriculture and, and really any exploitation of animals will start to unravel the more we pull on these strings of animal sentience, animal experience, animal emotion, and ultimately speciesism. 
So I think that these recognitions of sentience are really critical starting places on the path to total animal liberation. And here the UK has recognized animal sentience within their laws and any laws moving forward, any laws that are created for going forward. This is huge. It's really huge progress. And I also picked this particular news story to end with because it happens to be in the area that our guest today lives in. She's in London. So that wraps up the Glimmers of Hope stories. I hope you enjoyed them and they offered you a sense of optimism today that we are moving globally in the direction of compassion. And I have hope that we can come to a day where no animal suffers at human hands. We're moving there. We're getting there. So let's now bring in our guest. So today we are joined on the podcast by Dr. Leila Dehan. She is a doctor turned plant-based nutritionist. She received her medical degree from the University of Vienna and completed her internship in the UK. Her personal experiences of overcoming health challenges through diet shifted her professional interests to focus on the power of nutrition. And after transitioning to a whole food plant-based lifestyle, she earned a plant-based nutrition cert certification and obtained a master's of science in clinical and public health nutrition. She aims to find effective ways to address racial and socioeconomic issues that affect health. And she has a project that we're going to talk about called Athletes, Food, and Diversity, which seeks to introduce a plant-based diet to people of the global majority. And this, of course, is a new term that's uh, coined to refer to Black, Indigenous, and people of color. And if you listen to this podcast, you'll have heard that before. For people of the global majority. So we are very happy to have Leila. Welcome, Leila. Hi, thank you for having me. Of course. So let's start with you. I would love to hear a little about you. You live in London, and I would love to know what your vegan origin story is. Your every every vegan has an origin story, just like a superhero, and all vegans are superheroes. So when did you go vegan? Why did you go vegan? Tell us about your origin story. Sure. You know, I have been actually vegetarian on and off since my 20s. It started when I was in medical school and we were dissecting a human arm. And I looked at the muscle tissue in front of me and I thought, oh, my God, that looks exactly like the meat I eat. And wow. it was interesting. <laughs> I didn't actually make the connection that, uh, you know, the meat I'm eating comes from animals. I just thought it looks it could have been, you know, human flesh. And I don't want to eat that anymore. So I went vegetarian. But like everybody else, I thought, you know, we humans had to eat meat. You know, that is what we have always done. Um, so I would force myself actually to eat meat from time to time, not because, you know, I believe we needed the protein or some other nutrient from the animal product. It was just because, you know, it, is, it was the normal thing to do. And I wanted to be normal like everybody else. Mm. But, you know, the less uh, animal products I ate, the less meat I had, the more I lost actually the taste for it. So I didn't like it in, uh, anymore. And then um, 
I do martial arts. I met a group of professional martial artists and they were fully vegetarian. And I felt really inspired. And I thought, okay, if they can do it, I'm going to do the same. So I went uh, fully vegetarian at the time. Which martial arts did you do? Just curious. At the time, I used to do karate. Now I do kung fu, so I changed the style. Uh, But yes, uh, I still do it. Yes. So anyway, later I got involved in animal rescue. I uh, used to, um, you know, I have been to Romania and Bosnia a few times. I visit uh, public shelters. I take pictures, raise awareness uh, about what is happening, you know, to the dogs in Romania and Bosnia. And I had to rehome dogs. And, you know, I I was uh, an animal rescuer uh, and I thought, okay, I'm vegetarian. That's enough. I felt good about myself because I wasn't actually harming any animals. One day, one of my fellow rescuers um, who was vegan, uh, she shared a video about veganism. And because I trusted her, I watched the video. You know, after watching it, I actually went vegan then and there. I mean, you know, once I realized uh, the cruelty, the suffering involved in the dairy and egg industry, I thought, you know, I don't want to have that kind of negative energy in my body. I've always been very spiritual and I just didn't want to have the pain, you know, that comes with dairy and eggs in my body. And, you know, as I, when I made the connection, it was really easy to go vegan. Yeah. And so that's so interesting that you would say in medical school that you were dissecting an arm and that it reminded you of meat. And that's why you went vegetarian. I, I that's wow. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think mean, actually Dr. Barnard, he's one of the kind of well-known um, plant-based doctors. He had a similar experience when he was at medical school. I think, really? yes, I'll share that with him, yes. Wow. Ooh, ew. yeah. <laughs> I could see where that could certainly, um, you can make the connection there, yeah. So the reason that I wanted to talk to you today, though, is because your work focuses in on finding effective ways to address racial and socioeconomic issues that affect health. And of course, during the pandemic, health inequalities for certain segments of the communities that were already there really came out. I mean, we, we, people were talking about them. We saw these uh, inequalities coming to light more, which is good, but of course something needs to be done about them. So, so tell us about that work. Uh, I'm glad you asked about it. And I'm glad actually you mentioned, you know, COVID-19 and uh, the health uh, inequality that we have been witnessing. You know, last year, we got data um, on the ethnicity of people who were affected by COVID-19. And we could clearly see that ethnic minorities are disproportionately affected. Mm -hmm. And again, this has been, you know, both in the UK and in the US. And again, you know, when those health disparities made the headlines, it wasn't anything new. You know, COVID-19 just highlighted the long-standing health inequities and the social injustices that, you know, ethnic minorities face. Because we have known for a very long time that health is affected by social factors. And, you know, they are actually referred to as social determinants of health. And there are a few of them. You know, one of them is the environment, the neighborhoods that, you know, ethnic minorities live. Again, we have data showing that socially marginalized people are actually overrepresented in the deprived areas. And in those deprived areas, usually people don't have access to healthy foods. You know, I'm sure you have heard about the food deserts. And again, we have them both in the UK and US. Mm-hmm. And food deserts are just urban areas where it is really difficult to get a fresh quality food, fresh fruits and vegetables. 
And people have actually to travel to another area, to another shop to be able to buy, you know, uh, healthy foods. And again, you know, some people don't have the means to travel or and they have to decide, do I want to use that money on transport or do I want to use that money on buying food from a shop which is closer but doesn't offer those healthy options? So that is one of the actually social factors which, uh, you know, makes it impossible for those people to eat a healthy diet. And then other social determinants of health are like the economic stability, the occupation that those people have, job conditions, and even access to healthcare. And again, you know, we just need to look at the numbers, at the statistics, and we see that ethnic minorities are overrepresented when it comes to not having job security or not having access to education. And I don't really want to discuss the different, you know, the many socioeconomic factors because that would take long. But I want to actually talk about racism because racism can actually contribute to all the uh, social determinants of health that I mentioned, but it also has its own negative effect on health. And, you know, one of the biggest adverse effects of racism on health is stress. And we know that chronic stress can lead to an array of health problems. It is quite complex because, as I said, there are many different factors uh, which play a role. And I'm not going to claim that I have the answer, to be honest. But I believe it is up to us as individuals to do something to bridge the gap of racial and social injustice. Mm. And, you know, the first step is really by keeping an open uh, mind by being curious and asking questions of the very people who are affected and whom we want to help. You know, I see a lot of vegans saying that a vegan diet is inexpensive, that legumes and grains are cheap. And, you know, we tell people to go for a walk and do some exercise. But if we don't take into account the social and economic situation, we are going just to add to their frustration. They are going to feel judged because sometimes it's actually often, not just sometimes, often it is not lack of uh, knowledge. It is just lack of opportunity. They don't have the same, you know, access to go for a walk if they live in a kind of, a, in an area which is not safe, you know, just go say, go to, uh, for a walk after dinner. It's probably not possible. So we need to really take all these uh, social and economic factors into account when we talk to these people. And again, I think we can just start by admitting that it is not always easy to lead a healthy lifestyle. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, It's definitely something that we need to consider when we are uh, doing programs and campaigns and being aware of numerous situations and that, yeah, everyone has a different life experience. So not everyone, it's not going to be easy for everyone. So yeah, yeah, very important. Would you have suggestions for vegan campaigns and so, you know, what, what could we do to make uh, our language and our campaigns more inclusive? That is actually a very great question. And I think we need to pay attention to that. When you look at the mainstream vegan movement, it is white. I know when we talk about it, a lot of uh, people of color come and say, yes, we have always eaten a plant-based diet, which is true. But that is not about, you know, what our past history is. It's about, you know, what the mainstream media shows us. And this is why. And uh, I have actually heard from two uh, editors, you know, who work at uh, two online uh, vegan magazines saying that their content is usually aimed at white middle class female vegans. So they're actually admitting that they are ignoring people of color. 
you know, recently I have seen that a lot of articles, they have an image of a person of color. It is as if they want to say, oh, we are, you know, inclusive, we are diverse. But then when you look at the content, it is the same content. So the content hasn't changed. The content is not inclusive. So we really need to change, you know, what we write about. And we need to actually invite different voices. We need to invite uh, people of color to tell uh, their stories, their perspective, their unique insight. And that's why I actually appreciate your podcast, because I have seen that you have, you know, interviewed uh, other people of colors. And I think that is what we need. We need actually their lived experience because they are going to have a different story. And, you know, at the end of the day, if we want to be inclusive, we need to make the content inclusive. We need to have the different voices, which is not happening. And we cannot have just uh, like, a, you know, one uh, person of color uh, as a staff somewhere. And uh, pretending that, you know, we are inclusive and diverse. That is what I have been seeing quite a lot. And when you go to a lot of these uh, vegan organizations and you look at the staff members, and I do that all the time, to be honest, because I'm looking for people who look like me. And sometimes, you know, you see just one person. And yes, since BLM, that has been changing a bit, but it's not enough. Yeah, all good suggestions. Thank you. So you have a project called Athletes, Food, and Diversity. So tell us about this project. Tell us what it is and why you started it and its importance. You know, I consider myself a vegan activist. And like all you know, vegans, I want a vegan world. But I'm also a nutritionist. And I truly believe that a plant-based diet is better for our health. And in a way, you know, if you care for the animals, you should care for your health as well, because you want to be as healthy as possible. So, you know, uh, I'm not going to go into that, but uh, I think, you know, health is very important. So for me, it's always about, you know, finding ways to spread the message. Now, I don't usually initiate, you know, a talk, but, uh, you know, when the opportunity comes, I talk about veganism. Um, I'm an Iranian myself. So, and I have noticed that whenever I talk to people from the Middle East, they are not interested. You know, they keep telling me, oh, it's a white thing. It has nothing to do with me. It is something for white middle class people. It's almost like, you know, uh, they have the time to do that, but it's a luxury. Mm. And so I started actually paying attention. And uh, I'm in a, diff- in a few different Facebook groups, you know, vegan groups. And I paid attention to what is being said. And I also paid attention to the members, especially those groups where members have to pay and join. And I also paid attention to the articles in vegan magazines. And I realized that actually, yes, mainstream veganism is white. People of color are not represented in the mainstream veganism. And, you know, the content is not uh, inclusive. And if we produce non-inclusive content, that will actually drive communities of color away. So I wanted to to create a project that brings together all the so-called marginalized groups. And it was really important to me to have as many different ethnic backgrounds as possible. You know, we keep saying uh, people of color, BIPOC, uh, or people of the global majority, but none of those terms really captures the diversity of the people we are talking about. Mm. So it is difficult because we are not a homogenous group, but still I wanted to showcase as many different people as possible, as many different colors and backgrounds as possible. Now, I'm not saying uh, that I managed actually to do that, but that was my aim. Because I thought, you know, with this way, I can address the communities that are usually overlooked. 
because we know representation matters and it matters for many different reasons. Representation actually allows marginalized groups to have their voice heard. And there are a lot of stereotypes and misconceptions about you know, ethnic uh, minorities. And if they tell their own stories, then they can actually break those misconceptions. And also, you know, people need role models, role models they can relate to. So that's why representation matters a lot. And, uh, you know, I think vegans of color can bring a unique insight and authenticity that others don't have. They introduce topics like, you know, racial justice and food justice into the conversation. And they have actually an insider perspective. They understand the issues because, you know, it is their lived experience. You asked me earlier, you know, what can we do to uh, address those socioeconomic factors? And I think, you know, by actually inviting people from those groups to talk about the experience and share how they feel about it, what they need. Because, uh, you know, we talk about empathy. Uh, it's not about just empathy. We need actually to understand it so that we can come up with solutions. You know, by doing that, we can change the public image of veganism. Because again, I have heard people say that, you know, only white middle-class yoga practicing women are vegan. It is true. And I have heard it actually from uh, different uh, groups, uh, non-vegans. And I think, you know, we need to change a public image because uh, there are people we need to address. If we really truly want a vegan world, we need to talk to everybody. We cannot just address a small group of people. Right, right. Yeah. And, you know, it's not only to help the animals and make sure that, you know, we're spreading veganism to all corners of the world to help the animals, but also to help everyone. I mean, your focus, you know, is on nutrition and wanting people to be healthy. I think as vegans, we also want everyone to be healthy and well and thriving. Yeah. It's, you know, it's so important because if veganism is seen as like you said, just for, you know, white middle-class women who do yoga. I mean, that's, that's a very <laughs> small portion of the world. I mean, we don't, that, that's not what we want. Uh, this is something that's good for everyone, good for our health, good for the animals. We want it. We want everyone to participate and to feel the joy of living a vegan lifestyle. So we have to break these stereotypes. Yeah, this is all very important. So tell us again what the project is. I think you interviewed athletes of color, correct? Uh, some athletes yeah. of the global majority. So uh, why why athletes? Why did you focus on athletes? And tell us about the project specifically. Well, athletes are inspiring, to be honest. I mean, they have achieved something many people consider impossible. And because of that, people actually respect them. Also, because when you look at them, just you know, their physique, they are kind of seen as symbols of health. And people believe that you know, if they do what those athletes are doing, they can gain the same results. So people actually listen to them. You know, there is a success story behind uh, each athlete, and that gives people hope. So I wanted to kind of interview athletes because then people are more open actually to listen to them. But I also wanted to educate people about a vegan uh, diet, as well as just, you know, social justice issues like food justice. So I had the other, you know, kind of healthcare professionals of color and other people like uh, John Lewis, uh, aka Badass Vegan, who has actually uh, done a documentary on uh, food justice. So I had all these different people come and talk about these issues. It was really about raising awareness. 
just showing people that actually when we are talking about a vegan diet, about veganism, it's not just about animals. It's about, you know, creating a just uh, society for everybody. And human rights are part of that. And I was hoping that, you know, by, uh, by doing that, I would invite people to give veganism a try. I really wanted to speak to people who are really different and they feel left out because I know I do. You know, a lot of times when I look at articles and uh, I mentioned it again at, you know, organizations, I feel like, you know, there isn't anybody like me from my background and uh, having a similar story to mine. And uh, again, I, th- I thought, you know, by actually asking really personal questions of those athletes, um, people could find um, some similarities and be inspired and see, OK, if they have managed to do it. Uh, you know, change their diets and uh, change their health and uh, uh, be active for animals and for humans, fight for animals and humans at the same time, then maybe, you know, they would feel inspired to do the same. Yeah. And so where, where is the project? Where could people find these uh, interviews? Yes, uh, they can find them on my website. Uh, there is a page dedicated to the project and uh, then there's the, the links to the YouTube videos. Okay. I'll definitely put that in the show notes. Thank you. Yeah. So you see veganism as a social justice movement. Tell us what you mean by that. Uh, That's a great question. Yes, I do believe uh, veganism is a social justice movement because we as uh, animal activists and vegans, we want actually social, uh, a just society. We want social justice. And social justice is really about fairness in society. It's about having the same equal rights. And obviously, the opposite is social injustice. And when we look at it, social injustice is based on the premise that some people are better than the others. Some are more deserving. And that kind of thinking is shaped uh, by creating binaries, having a hierarchy of power. So if we think about it, the underlying mechanism is us versus them. A group is superior to the other group. And the superior group has the right to oppress the other. And when we make a group of people, or in case of veganism, another species, the other, we can justify our exploitation of them. You know, we can justify our abuse and our mistreatment. So it is the same principle. And I think it's really important to acknowledge and understand this concept. Because if we don't, we will just perpetuate the the same myths and we make everybody else the other and we won't achieve full animal liberation. So at its root, veganism is actually an ethical movement. It's a movement of respect and compassion and compassion for all. And we really need to understand that concept and we cannot ignore the other forms of oppressions because, you know, they are all interlinked. And if we want a true change, we need to have a change at all levels. We, if we want like kind of, you know, a just um, society, we need to have equity and fairness for all. Uh, I'm going to give you actually an example, and I think uh, that uh, will make it uh, clearer. I'm sure you heard that uh, recently a herd of cows escaped a slaughterhouse. And now I believe if it was only one cow, he or she would have had a better chance of actually being transferred to a sanctuary instead of you know, going back to the slaughterhouse. And I know that because we have had a few cases you know, of single cows escaping in the past. And like, you know, there was one actually in Poland a few years ago, and they usually get the chance uh, to go into a sanctuary. And recently, again, there was a pregnant pig who escaped. 
and not the pig and the babies are in a sanctuary. So when it is only one animal and they have a story, they have an agency, then we don't see them as the other anymore. They are not objects anymore. And even people who actually eat meat, people who are not vegans, they want to see that one pig, that one cow safe in a sanctuary. And usually as vegans, we say, yes, uh, you know, non-vegans suffer from cognitive dissonance. Uh, they love their pets. They advocate for that one pig, but not for all the other animals. And I think we actually do the same if we advocate for abused animals, but not for oppressed humans. So either we are against oppressions or, you know, we are not. And if we are, then we need to really address all the different oppressions which are, you know, out there. If we want full, you know, animal liberation, and I think that is what vegans want, then we really need to understand how the other oppressions work and how they influence veganism. Yeah, it reminds me of, of the, the word and the concept speciesism and that kind of larger systematic oppression piece. Uh, so yeah, and it's interesting, you talked about the cows that escaped. I actually saw a news segment on that, a morning news segment where they were talking about these cows and it was a, a large group, I think it was like 30 or so cows that escaped. And there was one that just kept eluding the capture and they'd gotten all the other cows and there was one cow that was still, you know, roaming the streets of wherever it was. And uh, they finally captured this one cow days later. And it was really interesting because they sent that one cow to a sanctuary, to a farm sanctuary, just like you said, you know, this one individual is suddenly an individual. <laughs> uh, so they sent this one cow to a sanctuary and the newscaster one said, uh, that's great that this one cow got to the far the sanctuary, but, but what about those other ones, the 30 others? Maybe they should have all gone to the sanctuary. And then someone, one of the other casters said, yeah, but what about your hamburger? You know, basically is what he was saying. Like, what about eating your, the other ones? And, and she was like, oh, let's not think about that. You know, it, yeah. it was really interesting that they had this moment of, well, of course this one cow should go to the sanctuary. Well, wait a minute. What about the 30 others that escaped? They should go to the sanctuary. Well, wait a minute. What about all of them? You know, uh, and it's it's fascinating to see that process happening in our society. I think we are starting to get it more and more, and starting to see these animals as the sentient individual beings that they are. Yeah. What can white allies, white people, do to help to create this just, compassionate world that we want to see, creating social justice? Yes, that's another good question. I think, first of all, we need to realize that we are all interconnected and interdependent. So we do need each other. And if we want to actually create a just world, we need to help each other. And we need allies in our fight against oppression. Having said that, we can't really deny that we live in a global white hegemony. And white people have an inherent power advantage. And I think, you know, we agree that with more power comes more responsibility. And let's actually talk about what an ally is. Being an ally means, uh, you know, to stand up for and support members of marginalized groups. And in this case, we are talking about white people, and especially white vegans, standing up for vegans of color. 
But it's not about just being sympathetic towards, you know, those who are experiencing discrimination. And it's not also just, you know, about believing in equity. It is about taking action. It's about actually being willing to act and help, you know, to end that oppression, to help discrimination and create equity. And I think we really need white allies because they already have a seat at the table and they need to make space for people of color. You know, uh, they need actually to include people of color, to ask them for their opinion. People of uh, color are not asking to be given a special treatment. People of color just want the same fair chances. Uh, Like, you know, what you are doing right now by interviewing me is just giving me a platform, isn't it? And uh, I think we need to change uh, the content of the material we are putting out there as vegans. So we really need to make it more inclusive, more diverse, and ask people of color to take part. And, you know, there, is a, there was actually a very good uh, article uh, written by a white vegan activist. And I don't know if, you know, Sentient Media, they did a series of uh, articles on yeah. racism within yeah. vegan movement. Yeah, they're yes, wonderful. They, Sentient Media is incredible. Yes, they did it in collaboration with Encompass. And uh, so one of those uh, white vegans, I really liked what she wrote. I mean, you know, how she became aware of her white privilege. And she wrote a list of actions she wants to take to use her white privilege to help actually make the movement more diverse. And I really liked it. I can actually send you the link and you share it with your audience. Because I think, you know, that is a good start, you know, becoming aware of uh, of your white privilege. But on the other hand, I want to mention something. People of color don't want another white savior. And that is really important to realize. So I know white people may feel overwhelmed, you know, on the one hand, they want to help, but they don't know how. But I think, uh, again, I'm going to go back to what I have uh, repeated a few times in the podcast today. Just ask people of color, ask them questions. They will tell you, you know, what they need. And uh, yes, because we don't want to perpetuate the same kind of, you know, colonialism that we have had. And we want uh, to help people of color to feel empowered, to take action. That is what we need. Very well said. Thank you. So Leila, it's been wonderful to talk to you. I feel like we need to wrap up soon. And I ask all of my guests this, and I'd love to ask you too. What gives you hope for the future? Well, I really hope that the vegan movement, first of all, acknowledges that it is a social justice movement and then merges with other social justice movements. Uh, you know, if we want kind of long lasting change, we need to work together. We, want, we really need to all these social justice movements to come together and help each other to create a just world. We need each other. So I really hope that happens in future. I agree. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast and thank you for all your wonderful work. Uh, We really appreciate it. I will put links in the show notes to all your projects and uh, things we mentioned. And thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you for giving me a platform to talk about my project, which is really close to my heart. I really appreciate that. Thank you for listening to the Hope for the Animals podcast. 
please help us to support this podcast. And if you are on your phone, scroll down to those stars and give us a five-star rating and maybe write a review. And if you're listening on your computer, maybe share this episode on your social media pages. Word of mouth is the best way for us to grow, so we need your help. Please tell others about this show and Thank you so much for that support and that love, and please live vegan.